gotta have gut hope. It's gotta get better. It's gonna get better. You've got this. This is the Gut Hope Podcast. Gotta have gut hope. Gut hope. Hope. Inspiration. And healing. It can happen. Hello, this is Steve. And I'm your host of the Gut Hope Podcast. I'm joined again by my friend Dee Dee. If you listened to the last episode, we talked a lot about Dee Dee's experience. If you haven't listened to that, you need to go back and listen to her story. It's going to help you understand where she is now and where she's going. And it will definitely give you some perspective. But I'm hoping this episode is full of hope. And I know there's a lot of people that are struggling out there that maybe going through the same sort of PTSD type symptoms. And we're so lucky to have Dee Dee to be able to talk about this. She's a professional, she understands this, and she's also gone through it. And so I'm really excited to get into this with her. Uh, welcome back, Dee Dee. How are you doing? Oh, I'm, I'm doing well, and I'm just so moved by what you just said. So I'm just a little awestruck. That was very nice of you. Thank you so much for that wonderfully warm introduction. Wow. Well, you're awesome, and <laughs> I can't wait to get into this with you. One thing that we've talked a little bit about just off air, as you and I have been talking, is, is about how your life is, isn't linear and this healing process isn't linear. And I think it's fascinating. Can you just talk about that a little bit and, and explain yeah. what that means? So when I look at how I'm moving through this process, and, um, and obviously there are, there are ways in which I find my way through some of these really tumultuous experiences, but it's not a straight line in an upward trend. For me, it's a lot of, you know, one step forward, two steps back. But I liken it to, actually, I call it not a journey of moving forward. It's my journey moving sideways. So I'm, I'm in motion and I'm, I'm moving towards a goal. I'm moving towards something that is um, a better feeling but it's a sideways journey, not a forward one. Yeah, if that makes any sense. It does. It, I think you, when you and I were talking about this, I was comparing this to the Marvel comic uh, movie, Loki, where he goes off on yes. his own time continuum. Yes. And, and I think you're planning to write a book about your life story, is that right? I am <laughs> currently writing the book of I'm, the story. Yes. I'm putting you on the spot a little bit there, but no, it's okay. I hope that uh, when the book comes out, we call it Sideways, and that you give me credit for that name. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Steve. If I call the book Sideways, you will get a big shiny credit for it. <laughs> okay, I think it's a, a great analogy or explanation of what you've gone through and where you're traveling right now. Yeah. 
when we talk about being healed, that's such a loaded word um, with people that I talk to. Do you feel like you are in a state right now of being healed or how do you feel about that? So healing is a complex, to me, it's a complex concept because a lot of times we think as soon as the symptoms, the physical symptoms have left us, that that's where the healing ends. Mm -hmm. And for a lot of people, when the when remission hits is actually where the healing begins. Mm. So that's why I'm talking about it being a, a sideways journey. We don't think about it in terms of that because here I am, you know, at this point, I'm starting to do better in, in my UC journey. Mm -hmm. There's no, there's no blood. I'm, I'm heading close towards remission, but now I'm having to deal with, the the reality of what's happening with my mental health Mm -hmm. and I didn't know what was going on with that I could feel that I was getting physically better but I didn't understand it and I didn't trust it and I would see it on paper you know that my numbers are coming down things are starting to level off and I couldn't get there I was getting texts from people telling me how happy they are for me that I'm turning the corner mm-hmm. but I'm finding myself completely unable to use that expression first of all this this corner that I'm turning I've been saying for 10 years I'm about to turn a corner and then you know look what would happen so even that phrase to me was starting to have a triggering type of response in wow. me and I didn't feel like I was turning a corner even even though at at this point in February, things are things are going well for me with the UC. I was just afraid now every moment that the symptoms are going to return. I didn't feel like I was out of the woods. I felt like I was delaying the inevitable. Or, well, at least that's what it felt like. I, in, in a small way, I think I can relate with what you're saying as a parent. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember counting the days with Brett and kind of going okay, what will happen on the 14th day? Because he's never made it to the 15th, right? Yeah. Or the 16th. And then when that day hit and the 16th day hit and the 17th day hit and you're just like, oh, boy, oh, boy, this might be good. I I really can relate with that part where you're you're just afraid to be hopeful because so many times you've been let down and said, nope now it comes back um the famous phrase everyone likes to do is uh, it will come back with a vengeance right that's that's what everyone oh. likes to say like not only is it going to come back it's it's going to be worse <laughs> yes <laughs> and this is what i'm this is one of my biggest problems with especially with with western medicine and doctors who are feeling the need to be very open and honest about what their experience is with Mm -hmm. you it doesn't leave room for that hope and when I would ask my GI doctor have you ever seen people go into permanent remission with UC Uh and I'll never I'll never forget his response because his response was sobering he says no it always comes back and it comes back worse just like you said yeah And, and then he would say you know we don't know when and we don't know how, but it always comes back. So in that moment when I'm being told that it's coming back, it's mm-hmm. like 
it's like saying, listen, Dee Dee, we know at some point that your home is going to be burglarized. We don't know when, we don't know how, but we guarantee you no matter what you do to prevent it, it will happen. Oh, gosh. So, like, yeah. how do you sleep now? <laughs> so every moment after that, right? Yeah. yeah. I. That's exactly how I felt. Yeah. Yes. And that's the, exactly so what the doctor, there. that's exactly yes. what he said to me, too. Because I was like, has anyone ever been fixed of this? Has anyone been healed? And no. You know, the answer is no. And now I love going back to see him because I'm like, has anyone done as good as Brett's doing? <laughs> right, right, right. Why don't you listen to what I'm saying? Well, let's do another, you know, cow protected test. Let's do this. Okay, we'll keep playing this game. But <laughs> eventually you're exactly. going to have to listen to what I'm saying. <laughs> I know. But I agree with you. They, The doctors are 100% sold out that even if you're feeling better, you're going to feel worse. It's going to come back. It, and living under that shadow, if you will, <laughs> yeah, exactly. is, is wrenching, right? It's terrible. Well, and it's a, it, it's a horror, right? I mean, so there you are wondering now, is this the moment that it's coming back? Is mm-hmm. this the moment that it's coming back? And that's what was happening to me. Uh, I'm, I'm laughing because I'm thinking of my wife. She, like, oh, interrogates yeah. Brett. She's like, are you sure you're not having diarrhea and you're not telling me? I mean, <laughs> she's like, I, I yeah. can't believe, you know, are you sure? And... And she thinks that he's lying or something because she just right. she still I think is struggling with accepting that. I've I've kind of moved past it, but I I know what you're talking about. So it's, this just resonates with me so well. Oh, what you're saying here. I I would imagine that it resonates with <laughs> all IBDers. I I mean it's yeah because at some point you you do hit remission and then it's like yeah what happens next is. Because we are constantly, it is drilled in us. Mm-hmm. This is a lifelong condition. Mm-hmm. You'll have periods of remission, but it comes back. And like you said, it comes back with a vengeance. So, so vengeance. what do those of us <laughs> who are are living in that experience, what do we do? So you have someone like me who's not only living with the UC experience, but I have all of this other unprocessed trauma from years and years of chronic illness that I haven't dealt with because I keep pushing things so far away so it felt like everything was starting to pile on to me emotionally all at once and I just began hyper focusing on my bodily sensations I was just constantly scanning my body for danger Mm -hmm. I was just convinced that every single pain was going to turn into another emergency because that's what I knew Mm. okay sounds terrible yeah, Almost as it, bad as being sick in the first place. Well, mentally, to me, this experience was worse. It was. It was worse. I would. Wow. Oh, it. Uh, there was. There was no contest when I was sick. I knew how to do that. I knew how to get resourceful and to do the research and plan and organize. I knew how to do that. But at this point, my brain's malfunctioning, and I can't do anything. And I am just screaming for help in a certain sense and and no one knows how to help me because nobody knew exactly the ins and outs of what is wrong with me mm-hmm. and I remember like I was finally able to sleep at night because the UC isn't keeping me up all night 
and my husband would tell me how happy he was that I was able to sleep and mm. I wasn't happy because I was starting to experience what I now know are night terrors or chaos dreams. So every dream that I was having having at night was about something catastrophic happening. Like um like my husband smashing his face into something. Like I wasn't even dreaming about the actual diseases coming back. I was dreaming about equally horrific events getting mm -hmm. worse and worse like a me on a plane hearing the engine die and I'm free falling to the death like or my teeth being ripped out by the roots this was every night and it was all night long and that's very different than your dreams in the past this is like yeah oh yes yes you're noticing wow I'm having some crazy s dreams going on did you think oh that must be a reaction to my medication <laughs> No, or I, I, how did you explain it to yourself? What was going on? Well, I, I, because I have an extensive history, a training in, yeah. in trauma and the effects of, of trauma, I was recognizing this as some, some sort of PTSD. And it was, it was making sense to me, but I still, it, it was, although it was making sense to me, I was still trying to deny it. Like, yeah. well, that couldn't possibly be happening to me because this is illness like it's not and I'm it, getting it, better, better right yes that and you, and you just hit on the the perfect point I was belittling myself because I'm starting to get better physically why mm -hmm. wasn't my mind allowing me to feel good in the moment and it just wasn't wow so how did you end up connecting the dots and really getting serious and go, I think I've got PTSD from this experience. How did, well, how, how it did took you get a while. there? Yeah. It, it took, a, yeah, it took a while to, because like at this point, these are just clues, right? And so, um, and it's also important to note that because I'm experiencing this on a daily basis, my, my brain's not letting me think really rationally in a moment to say, hey, here are these dots I'm connecting. Mm -hmm. It would be like, I would wake up in the morning and within moments of waking up, I was either gasping for air or I was, I was panicking so mm, hard. Wow. I would just start to scream cry. And the scream crying was extremely startling to me. I would actually hear myself scream and I would, I would have a thought to myself like, oh, how dramatic. Wow. And then it would be like, oh, that's me. That's me screaming. Wow. It felt just so foreign to me, but I, I couldn't stop it. I, every time I would pass by the bathroom in my house, I, my breathing would get really heavy and I couldn't tolerate it. I wasn't connecting that the bathroom is where a lot of this horror would take place. And my body is remembering all of that. Wow. So let's take a minute here and explain maybe a little bit about what PTSD is. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're talking so, about some of the symptoms you're having. Can we yes. can we break down PTSD a little bit so that other people could be looking at this going, yeah, uh, you know, maybe they're not having night terrors, but they're having something like this with trauma with the with the restroom or the bathroom. Um, well, exactly. So can we just, since you're a pro at this. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well. Tell us what so PTSD is. PTSD is... Well, it's short for post-traumatic stress disorder right. and it develops 
typically after witnessing or experiencing like a shocking or scary, dangerous event. And anyone can develop it, but if you have been through a physical or sexual abuse or uh, if you have been in an accident or any kind of a disaster or serious event, you can develop this. Yes. So that's what PTSD is. Um, There are different subtypes of of PTSD. There's um, complex PTSD and that usually occurs after um, like repeated trauma. So living with violence or living with sexual abuse, these are repeated episodes, whereas PTSD is singular episodes, or it can be singular episodes like accidents, plane crashes, home invasions. But even war vets can develop PTSD by witnessing different types of trauma that the average person just isn't exposed to on a daily basis. Right. And typically after experiencing this that's what the p is in there post-traumatic stress Mm -hmm. so like in the moment you may be handling this fine but then afterwards you're you're not handling it um why why do you think some people are experiencing ptsd and some aren't what's the difference there do you think well i i tend to think of ptsd as a spectrum like um so it's it's to me it's understandable after experiencing like a like a very horrific car accident like you're involved in a horrific car accident you're seeing a lot of things you're experiencing a lot of things this makes this makes sense and um i think the stats on something like that are you know 12 to 20 percent of people who have experienced a life threatening or life-changing event go on to Mm -hmm. develop that um but it's almost um it can be obvious to other people that these are um post-traumatic stress disorder symptoms Mm -hmm. and so it can it's easier to identify in a certain sense whereas with chronic illness we don't we don't think of it as um post-traumatic stress because we don't think of illness in the same category as PTSD symptoms, but they they very much are. Um, in fact, it's it's very underreported. It's very it's a very under researched type of PTSD, and that is illness induced or medically induced PTSD. Mm-hmm. So this is where there is a significant um, post traumatic stress symptoms, but they are the direct result of an acute or chronic illness. And like I said at the very beginning, if you haven't listened to Dee Dee's story, you wouldn't understand what she's talking about right now. But uh, Dee Dee went through some serious illness, and that explains, I think, very well why she was having all this PTSD now, right? I mean, yes. I even think of a. You were talking about just witnessing a car accident. And I remember a couple years ago, I saw a car accident right in front of me that rolled the car like five times. And I was the first person on the scene. Oh, and my gosh. And I mean, I, I, I imagine I experienced some sort of PTSD afterwards. I didn't mm-hmm. really want to drive. I definitely was driving way below the speed limit. You know, mm-hmm. it just mm-hmm. traumatized me a little bit where I was like, wow, people are crazy out there. I need to be super careful. 
-hmm. And then some time went by, and now I'm back to driving normally. <laughs> well, but and I you bring up a good point. Yeah, go ahead. Um, so when you're saying that after a period of time you're back to driving normally, that's mm -hmm. because the brain was able to reconfigure itself and your very specifically your amygdala, which is the processing emotions part of the brain, wasn't being hijacked by that that stress response. Okay. So over over a period of time, even when you're when you're not doing anything to address it, it will a lot of times naturally go back to your normal rhythm and you can drive normally again but absolutely for that period of time when you were driving after witnessing an accident everything is heightened so mm -hmm. your senses become heightened you're aware of things that you weren't aware of before yeah does that make sense it does i I, I can understand that, and I especially understand somebody going through a medical or illness-induced PTSD because you're you're thinking you're going to die, right? I mean, yes. you're you're right on the edge or the cusp of losing it, and you've gone through so much pain. That's another big part of this is this pain that you're experiencing, yes. right? It it was because even when i'm i'm doing better i became very aware of every small feeling inside my body and so any pain became dangerous any pain became like am i picking up the phone to call an ambulance what is this and there was no rational thinking it went from i'm okay in a moment to you're gonna die anywhere along that spectrum huh it was wow. uh, yeah it was not it was not good and the reason why i say that the illness itself was almost easier to deal with was because w when i would wake up in the morning when it was at its worst when the ptsd was at its worst it was five hours of complete meltdowns then a reprieve and then back to 10 out of 10 panic for 20 out of the 24 hours a day i mean legitimately I was like, what's this pain? What's that pain? Is it coming back now? How about now? How about now? Like, it was just so relentless. Wow. Uh, right. <laughs> okay. This seems like it should be pretty common that we should be seeing this coming out of hospitals. This, but you're saying this is really underreported. Why do you think that it's would be? It's underreported. I why think because that? there is there's such a stigma um, about it for hmm. people like me that we can't be, because we're having a really hard time adjusting to life and we aren't really talking about it with other people because we assume that nobody's going to understand. It's important to keep in mind that if any of the loved ones have been around for the illness, they too are waiting for the day you turn the corner. And how do you say to someone, I don't feel happy. I am not, I'm not good with this. I am, I am horrified when they need you. They need you to be your own cheerleader at this point. They need you to be okay because they've been going through the same hell that you've been going through. Right. I'm thinking. And it can be really challenging. <laughs> yeah. I'm thinking of how your husband is just reacting to all of this. He's so happy oh, that you husband. slept through the night. He's, yes. he's so happy that you're feeling better. And then you're waking up gasping and how is he? And, if you don't mind me asking, how's he handling all this? Well, I, I scored a lucky one when I found him because <laughs> he has been through everything with me and he, 
he goes through his own trauma with it mm -hmm. because when he sees that I'm not doing okay, then he's not doing okay. And he's experiencing these heightened levels of, of hypersensitivity to, to me. So it, it got, it can get very challenging for the two of us, but we just, we love each other so much that we just want to see through all of this hardship to get to the good stuff. And my husband is really wonderful at seeing the optimism in, ev in everything. And sometimes I just really need that. <laughs> he sounds like an amazing guy. I'm glad he's oh been there gosh. for you through all of yes. this. Uh, he's been such a, a stoic partner for me, <laughs> just steadfast and just beside me for everything. That's fantastic. And I imagine that's an important piece of working your way through PTSD is having support a like support that? system yes um, and I, I I often say that that you you do need to be able to find people that you can be yourself around especially when you're going through something so traumatic and at the beginning when I was going through it he didn't understand it right away because I didn't have the sophistication of language to explain it to him so when I would be upset and I'd be crying and he can see that I'm lifting my arms and I'm walking and I'm doing all of these things, it would be very frustrating to him. And through his own devastation, it would be like, you know, why, why can't you just get there already? I mean, he never said that to me, mm -hmm. but it was, I could feel that frustration and I felt it for him. Like, I know, why can't I get there? What is wrong with me? So the people that are feeling the same way, and this is, I'm sure they're listening to this and just saying, yeah, I, I know what you mean, Dee Dee. I just, I don't have the words for this. There, mm -hmm, I mean, mm -hmm. uh, I can relate to this where I've, I've talked to people before and I, I just, there's no other word than I, this was traumatic. You know, I, I, there, there should be better words in our language <laughs> to right, describe I, it. It is traumatic, <laughs> right? right? It's. It's so devastating that you said having a support system is important to find people that we could get around that are going to be there for us. Mm -hmm. Now, let's say somebody's listening to this and they, they're they like, yeah, that's what I need, but I don't even know where to go. I don't even know how to talk about this. What, what direction could we send them? I hope it's not Facebook. <laughs> no, in fact, I would I would oh, strongly advise against Facebook for this because me too. Right? Yeah. I mean, There's so much negativity is, out there, yeah. And so I mean, Facebook is a really great platform to be able to shed all of those layers and be really honest, but if you're looking for hope um mm -hmm. and and a way to figure out how to get through it, Facebook is not the way to go because people are still struggling so mm -hmm. heavily there and right. and they aren't going to be the ones that you can find a diamond in the rough like mm -hmm. Kim and uh, like and Ryan but a lot of times it's not going to be that way because as Dr. Snow often says the people who are on Facebook are, are still living in their hell they those who aren't they're living their lives they're not on Facebook mm -hmm. exactly so it can it can be really tough to to, to navigate that world and try to figure out what you do what you do next all right so where do we send them is there a ptsd hotline or where does somebody go that so wants there to start are, surrounding themselves with some positivity there are crisis lines okay. that that people can call and um 
because PTSD, it's looked at in a, in a, in a much more narrow lens than what an IBD -er or somebody with chronic illness would need someone to be looking at this with. It's too narrow and it's, and what we need is we need something that is more uh, accessible. And so I would start by asking someone to be easier on themselves as they're going through the process of trying to figure out what's wrong with them. We belittle ourselves. We are angry that we can't just snap out of it and that we can't get through it. But if the, if the first step to understanding what's happening to you is to be gentler with yourself, this is a good place to start. So it's not necessarily who do I seek out because that can be just as dangerous. So I would suggest that the first step to healing from your trauma would be to be mindful of the language you're using with yourself. Okay. And what, what's a good example of that? Okay, so something that I was doing was telling myself there, like, there's something wrong with you. Why aren't you getting better? Snap out of this. Um, why can't you just figure this out? And then I am, I would constantly be catching myself in that, and I would say I would start switching a script and changing a narrative, and I would say, "Hang on, this makes sense." you're feeling like this because you've been through a lot. This makes sense. Mm -hmm. So it's almost like I would speak to myself the way with, with, with the gentle compassion that you would speak to a child with. That's how I would speak to myself. Uh -huh. It was intentional. It was deliberate until it became more natural because I would never speak to another human being the way that I was speaking to myself. So I just wouldn't allow that to be okay. I didn't want that in my experience anymore. So that's what I started to do is be much kinder to myself as I'm speaking. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. It reminds me, I think we're probably going to talk about this, I hope. Um, it reminds me of uh, CBT or Cognitive Behavioral Therapy. This book mm -hmm. I've been reading about that, is. does that tie into this? The way you speak to yourself? Well, yeah, so like the CBT. internal voice that you have going on. The dialogue. Yeah, this dialogue, this self-talk that you have saying, oh, I've got a problem, you know, and, and I love how you put it, like how you would talk to a child, right, like mm -hmm. with kindness. Yes. Speak to yourself with kindness. Yes. Yeah. That's one of the most important things because otherwise you are hating on your body and a hated body won't heal. Hmm. You will not heal. Your mind won't heal if you are belittling it if you are if you are constantly just being critical so that's one of the first things that I tried to lift and I would want to catch myself when it was happening and just to be easier on myself and be kinder to myself as I'm as I'm going through the process so Didi it sounds like that you were helping yourself was there anyone along the path that kind of said maybe a peer or a colleague saying this sounds like PTSD or is this something you figured out on your own? So it was definitely something that I had some help with diagnosing, I suppose you could say, because uh -huh. I went to see, I was seeking out the help of, of different types of trauma therapists. 
so I would I would I would see a therapist and have them sort of evaluate what they thought was happening and sort of all across the board it was definitely um, unanimous that that I was experiencing PTSD Um, but very few of these trauma therapists if any had a a large understanding of illness induced PTSD that's interesting I mean yeah. Do you have any information like how common this is to have a uh, medical or illness induced PTSD? It's it still strikes me as like this should be so many people coming out of the hospital are going to be just right. shooken up. <laughs> you know. Well, and it, it, it's true. I mean, with and it's also important to to notice that with with my type of, with my level of PTSD, like Mm -hmm. it was so high and off the charts and extreme that it became a little easier to recognize, but not everyone's experience with, with their um, medical issues are going to result in the extreme level that my PTSD manifested. But Yes, I mean, the, these, these therapists didn't understand exactly the nature of it. And when you look at what treatment is like for <laughs> PTSD, yeah. it's, they, they put PTSD and complex PTSD in the same category. And then, and then there's us with medically induced PTSD. Mm-hmm. And although the symptoms of PTSD are very, like they're similar all across the board, and maybe we should actually touch on that so that people understand what some of the symptoms are okay so the symptoms of PTSD are pretty similar um, all across the board with CPTSD and medically induced PTSD and so the recipient will experience like um, very distressing memories of the traumatic event or Mm -hmm. they relive the event as though it's happening in the present Um, like me you know having very unpleasant dreams or night terrors, um, emotional distress, uh, physical reactions to something that reminds them of the event, or um, avoidance, not wanting to think about or talk about the event or what's happened, or they'll avoid certain places or activities that remind them of the event. Um, A lot of people will go on to develop just this sense of hopelessness or fear about the future. They have memory problems including sometimes dissociating and not even remembering the event, the event altogether. Mm. Um, a lot of times they can have difficulty maintaining relationships. They can become detached from family and friends. And this is a big one, especially with us in the medically induced PTSD. Uh, we have difficulty trusting positive emotions. Mm. So when something good is coming into the experience, the the automatic reaction is going to be to to push it away right yeah Yeah. so it's it's just a it's it's complicated but these are symptoms that are are similar with all three types so another thing that that they have is they have difficulty um adjusting to sights and sounds and smells they become startled by them okay and hypervigilance is another um always being on guard and looking for possible danger like for me it was like i was i'm constantly scanning everything in my in my body Mm -hmm. and um 
when things get worse and when people aren't able to recognize these symptoms and then it starts to turn into something a little more progressive, people can engage in self-destructive behavior like alcohol abuse, drug abuse, or anything that can make them feel like they're just escaping from the feelings. There's uh, trouble concentrating, trouble sleeping, and then angry outbursts or feelings of just complete overwhelmed guilt and shame. So these are these are the big symptoms that come with a lot of people who experience PTSD of any kind. And then it could be just like a spectrum. You could have three of yes. those things. You could have yes. one of those things. You could have all of those things. Yes. Right. Wow. You don't have to have all of them to be able. In, in fact, if you are experiencing one of these symptoms mm -hmm. uh, to a large degree, you could absolutely be having PTSD. It's just, it's, it's, it's a spectrum. And like, like for, my for example me, of sorry, seeing that car, right? I yes. just had a couple of the things that you're talking about and it was mild, I guess. I mean, I don't know what the terminology is <laughs> compared to the stuff you were going right. through. And that's where I was just kind of like this. Some of these pieces fit with what you were saying, but some of them definitely didn't. And I was like, but I know that I went through some trauma there, right? Yeah, you did. Yeah. You did experience trauma, and that's why your brain was um, on overdrive with things that you wouldn't normally look at or consider. So, Dee Dee, uh, just knowing your personality type and how you love to research everything, I imagine you dug into this PTSD with fervor. I did. I <laughs> was very interested at that point in discovering more about what was happening to me and how I could, I could help myself since it didn't feel like I was getting the right help from the different therapists that I was seeing. So I started researching a PTSD program to help me cope. Hmm. Now this program, although it was very helpful in a lot of ways, it was not helpful for me for a few different reasons because, well, this PTSD program was focusing on reminding the individuals who are experiencing all of these symptoms that they're safe right now. They're safe where they are and they are not in that bad place. They are not experiencing the actual event in the moment. They're not in the war right now. They're not being sexually assaulted in that moment. Mm -hmm. But here's why this doesn't work for those of us with illness-induced PTSD. Our PTSD triggers are not external. Yeah. They're internal. Right. Meaning that they're, they're coming from within the body. So in other words, PTSD and CPTSD, there's typically an ending with these symptoms, with, with these triggers. And with us, there is no set endpoint. We're talking about repeated trauma within the body that is continuous. So it doesn't leave that room to feel like we're safe. Even though you've been healed, you're looking at your body going, maybe I'm healed, but maybe I'm not. It's like any time there was a, a pain, it's, it's coming back. Mm. I'm sure of it. I know that this is what's happening, and now oh. I have to brace myself for that war again. I see what you're saying. Wow. Okay. And 
so many of us don't understand this. We don't understand why it's happening or why. We think that we are wrong because we just can't snap out of it. But the truth is that there are more of us than we think. There are so many people that are experiencing varying degrees of this, but of those reported, so when we're just looking at PTSD alone, approximately 12 to 25% of people who, su who survive a perceived life-threatening event, they go on to develop PTSD. Mm -hmm. So that's 12 to 25% of people who survive a perceived life-threatening event. 11 to 20% of military vets, they have PTSD. And then you have the sexual violence survivors that have PTSD. They, so 19 to 30% of those survivors develop PTSD. Wow. Those are some high numbers. They, these, are, these are high numbers, Steve. I'm so glad that you said that because this is where it gets really interesting for me. There was a study done at the University of uh, Manitoba where they screen most of their IBD patients for PTSD. So it's important that we understand that a screening is not a reporting or a diagnosis, mm -hmm. but regardless, these statistics are staggering. So a baseline for these patients, 30 to 50% of these patients, these IBD patients screened, they tested positive for PTSD with remission acting as a, like a protective barrier around the severity of the PTSD. But their baseline was higher than any other reported PTSD. Wow. Mm -hmm. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So you're talking about like the number as high as 50%. Yes. So that, that the number can be as high as half. Half of IBD patients screened for PTSD come out with PTSD symptoms that are, that are severe. Wow. And they don't know it. When they're leaving the hospital after getting this test, they're not leaving with any uh, type of help or, or anything of the sort. They're just, they've just been screened. That's all that's happened. They really probably don't even know what's coming at them, right? No, they don't because we don't realize that there are varying degrees of, of trauma and yeah. how we experience trauma. We assume trauma has to be some big complexity or, or actual life-threatening experience, but that's not true. Trauma can be anything that elicits an emotional response that stays with you. So when we hear our diagnosis and we, we relive that and we replay that, or you know what, when you heard your doctor say, I'm trying to save your son's colon. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I remember Boy, you saying, you say that right now, I get emotional just hearing you say that. <laughs> it makes me want to punch him. <laughs> like, you yes. jerk. Yes, because yeah. what you were looking for was, was hope, and what they are right. giving you is emotionless statistics. Yeah. And that experience stays with you, you know? I mean, and so that's what I mean. There are different degrees of trauma. All right, good example. You just traumatized me. <laughs> you, just, <laughs> you just brought back a very bad emotion for me. <laughs> very well done. <laughs> that's not something that I delight in. Well, um, you, that's definitely a trigger for me. That's, that's a phrase I'll never forget. Yeah, yes, yeah. You know. And it's definitely an example of, of how trauma can have these different degrees of mm -hmm. that it doesn't necessarily 
have to be something that threatens your life. It is something that elicits a response and it stays with you and it brings back a feeling, an emotion that is uncomfortable. Wow. And it's just, I'm so sorry. No, that's all right. I, I'm just, my, my mind has actually moved on from what that feeling already. Yes. And yes. now my mind is on who else is suffering with this still? If it's 50%, I mean, how, and then I'm sitting there thinking, well, how am I going to reach all these people? <laughs> I mean, my mind just starts going, well, well, what can we do for them? Cause that's, that's way too high. It is. But I, 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 I wow. think it's so important that we, that, that, that you do the job that you're doing because you're getting so much information out there for people that otherwise wouldn't have that. And, and it's so specific what you're doing. Good. It's, well, it's very important. Yeah, I hope people share this message with others, especially people that are listening to it that are going through it. Mm-hmm. Maybe some family members that are recognizing this, because you wouldn't, your mind wouldn't immediately go to this could be a problem with our son or my wife mm-hmm. or, mm-hmm. you know, you you wouldn't be thinking that because you're in this hopeful state. Right. As a caregiver, I guess even a caregiver could be going through the same PTSD. Oh, also, care, caregivers, yeah. yes, yeah. Yeah, they, they they go through it absolutely, Boy. and they go through it to a different degree and a different in a different way, and it's 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 just as hard. When we think of trauma, we think of all of these really big things, and we don't look at the smaller scale things. And trauma is so much; it's much more nuanced than we think. Wow. For example, being when, when you look at childhood trauma, we don't think that being a social outcast could be traumatic, but it is. Mm-hmm. These, these ramifications, these emotional ramifications are examples of smaller scale trauma, like being involved in um, a toxic relationship, for example, that's a form of trauma. Being humiliated, um, some of this stuff just shows up later in life. And as a society, we're told that these are normal experiences. But some of us, we bury these feelings about what we've, what's happened or what we've seen, and we have a really hard time processing or dealing with it. Hmm. And sometimes that can end in lower levels of mental health, and sometimes it can even attach itself to our physical health later on in life. Now, it's, it's really important that I'm clear on this, that I'm not suggesting that trauma causes IBD. Causation uh-huh. and correlation, they're, they're two totally different things. Right. I do think that there is an element of unprocessed early childhood trauma that that can that does show up to increase one's likelihood of developing conditions like IBD. So are there some characteristics that you found in people that are that that tend to lean towards developing IBD beyond just trauma or Yes, yeah, so there's just tons of compounding research being done now regarding personality types and IBD. So in this one study, more than half of the IBD patients involved, they showed a higher propensity towards traits like ritualistic behavior, uh-huh. self-doubt. Um, so in this study, they tended to see IBD patients more on the shy side, even if on the surface they seem boisterous. And they tend to be organized, like very methodical. And <laughs> you see patients tend to 
yeah, it's very, well, very organized. Well, I'm thinking of my son. Uh, I, I should go in there and send you a picture of his bedroom right now. It's like immaculate. <laughs> it's like, it's, oh, it's it so beautiful. He, he keeps everything so organized. And I'm just wondering, is that, uh, why would that tie to IBD? Is it because you're stressing so much know. about making everything perfect that that somehow internally that's causing you some problems with your body? I mean, that's actually a really good observation or evaluation of the yeah. situation. Like, I mean, I haven't been able to figure that piece out. The study I found fascinating, but I couldn't find uh, a connection to it other than the fact that some of these personality traits that they're describing, I tend to have as well. Yeah. Like I'm, I am ritualistic. I am, I, although I, I'm not on the shy side, but I am methodical, I'm meticulous. And so I, I was identifying with that. Hmm. And, and you see it specifically, um, they say that the, the, the UC patients tend to be more intelligent, but are more self-critical. And that UC patients aren't as um, outwardly demonstrative with emotional outbursts. So, you know, we're, we're quieter in, in that sense. So I found that very interesting as well. Oh, I've never heard about the, this IBD personality traits. I'm going to have to dig into that it's, a little bit more. That's super interesting. Yeah, it's very, I found it very interesting. But like I said, it's, it's a study that's, that's not saying this is the cause of IBD. Because if it were the cause, then every neurotic person out there would have it and that's just right. not the case there are other things that are going into that as well like the microbiome that um i think dr snow talks about that a lot mm -hmm. yeah there but, um, i think everybody knows there's a lot going on but there's it's neat to see these contributing factors and and hopefully you're using them to your benefit right where you're going okay mm -hmm. this is part this is part of my personality it doesn't mean that i that's what caused it but it is a just one right. more contributing factor if i'm obsessive about keeping everything organized that could be part of what's causing me my problems and maybe that's a piece that you could even work on and go oh, okay exactly. let me lighten up exactly talk to myself because like i'm a child <laughs> no, right. well, to be easy on yourself like you're a child uh, yeah yeah that's, yeah. I'm going to remember that one forever. That's a really good one. I like that. Oh, good Be idea. easy on yourself like you would a child. Yeah. Yes. Be kind to yourself. Yes. Be kind. Yes. So are there physical components inside the bodies uh, that are yes. indicators of who would be more likely to develop IBD also? Yes. Um, so the physical correlations that are being observed in IBD patients, and I think we all really know about this, but it's just now being unveiled and, and studied. So it's almost like creating the perfect storm. If we're already genetically predisposed to IBD from someone in the family, that's a correlation. And then there's all of this research being done on the use of antibiotics and the overuse of antibiotics and how it destroys the gut microbiome and mm -hmm. removes the good and the bad bacteria from the gut. So that's leaving one susceptible over time to develop IBD. But there's this fascinating research about people with IBD that are missing essential chromosomes. So they're just not being produced naturally. That's leading the gut to have gut dysbiosis, which is essentially where your gut microbiome is just out of balance. So you've got, you've got these physical correlations and then you've got this IBD personality and 
and antibiotic use and it just leaves room for if you were if you were already predisposed to developing this condition this makes a good recipe for it mm-hmm. well that i hope is helpful to somebody who's sitting there going why do i have this right i mean i think we've all gone through that uh, I remember my son asking me that all the time. You know, why why is this happening to me? And uh, why is my immune system so good? Because <laughs> you know, that, exactly. that was the explanation. You know, your immune system's so good that it's it's yeah. battling itself. And uh, it's neat to think of these different pieces that could be tumbling together and going, okay, part of your personality. I've never heard anyone say that before. Part of your environment maybe you took mm-hmm. antibiotics part of your genetics part of your chromosomes mm-hmm. and when all those tumblers turn at the right time and we haven't talked about this but i also believe stress is a major contributor yes it, it almost everyone i talk to has a super stressful point in their life and yeah. it, i think your story is one big long stressful thing i don't know if you were yes. in a particularly stressful time when this hit but i it was all stressful was, to it, it was, was all stressful to me yeah. listening to it i so. know I'm so sorry. <laughs> but can you can you go into that just a little bit about uh the stress that was going on with you at that time mm-hmm. that you felt might be a contributor yeah it's it's so interesting that you bring that into the forefront of this conversation because it's it, it's something that took me a while to understand and um, my my largest symptoms were happening when COVID hit and mm-hmm. it was when I felt that I was actually in the height of my career I was helping families that were old and new to me I was um, helping them navigate this chaotic world that we were living in I was I was getting in touch with news teams to get them to give me the most reliable news feed and information so that I could be sending out daily messages and reports to my families on what to expect, how to navigate this pandemic. And I felt my career was taking off, but I felt the stress of the world and mm. the stress of the, the pressure that I was feeling from having to deliver the right type of information to, the, to these families. And it got to me. It was, I, I just wouldn't stop working. I was in the tub, you know, writing emails, trying to get everything while I was like, I'm practicing self-care. Nope, not if I'm in the tub and I'm working. So you felt like the burden of COVID was on your on your shoulders. I suppose I did. <laughs> to, I, I certainly took it that way. Wow. That yeah, way. That, that is a very, a pandemic on your shoulders. Yeah, a yeah, yeah. That That's a that's a heavy t- load to carry, Didi. <laughs> okay. Yeah, so that that is how that that was such a heightened level of stress for me. And like I said, it took me a while to recognize stress as um sort of the catalyst to these cascading symptoms that were just raging out of control, but right. that's yeah, that's what it was for me. And so if you're helping someone, you're a caregiver or someone you're, if, if you're seeing this in yourself, I think yeah. telling someone, well, you're stressed out is like not helpful, right? Maybe it is right. to, to help someone identify that doesn't realize it. But how, how do we start helping people that are experiencing this s- symptoms? How do we 
carefully address this. We're not hurting anyone's feelings. Well, I'm not very sensitive, me. so talk to me like I'm a child. Okay. <laughs> okay. How, do How do you talk to somebody and say, look, Susie, you're having a bit of a problem? You know, and <laughs> well, it can be really tough because yeah. we're looking at people who are, all have their own different survival techniques to to be surviving what they're going through. But there are a few universal things, I think, you should and shouldn't do if you're a, a loved one of someone going through this. And because most of the time we don't understand what's happening to us, we have so little control over it. So I would suggest, like, it's not wise to use phrases like, uh, don't worry, this is going to pass, or you just got to think positive. That's a real... That's a that's a real kicker for me. Uh -huh. I'm not a fan of telling someone who's going through this to that all they have to do is think positive because this condition, this this PTSD condition has nothing to do with conjured thinking. Uh huh. So the it's it's a wiring issue in the brain. It's what's happening is the brain is being hijacked. The amygdala, like we had talked about earlier, it's being completely hijacked. And the amygdala is the emotional memory, and it processes everything so much faster. And it hijacks the entire brain before we can think clearly or logically. So it's just not possible for us to think our way through it. Give so me some hope again, here. What can we do? Rather than saying, you know, yeah. you got to turn this off. or <laughs> <laughs> Right. So, so rather than saying you have to think positive or don't let yourself think like that, mm -hmm. um, try asking instead instead saying something like how can i support you i've heard that this is a really helpful phrase like for me it wasn't i, like I couldn't that. handle being asked that because uh -huh. i wanted people to instinctively know what to do <laughs> because i couldn't function and i needed someone to figure it out for me but that wasn't happening but but when you ask someone how can i support you it's disarming it's, it's, it's letting the person know that you're there for them and you're not trying to shift or change the emotion or the feeling in that moment. You're just there with them. How can I help you? How can I support you? Mm -hmm. That's beautiful. So another... F yeah, it, I mean, it, it, it is. It's, it's a beautiful sentence. Yeah. And a another phrase that is usually very well received is when you are able to sort of strip away... Um, the, the other things and you're just able to, to look at that person and you're able to say to them I recognize what you're going through is so hard and it must be challenging and I'm so sorry you're experiencing this uh -huh. so this is very acknowledging of the person and the beauty in this is that it requires nothing of them uh. and that's really important we don't want to be putting them in a position where they have to make us feel better because we're uncomfortable with them being uncomfortable so if you're to say to someone that you see going through that, if you're, if you're gonna really validate them, you're gonna say to them that you're so sorry they're going through this and that this, is, this must be so challenging. And, and you don't need to say anything else. You just let them take it from there. Uh, it's interesting you said that. I, I just saw that with one of my family members this last weekend and another mm -hmm. family member said that to him and it was wow. very disarming. You yes. saw all his defenses come down. Mm -hmm. He got teary-eyed, and he mm -hmm. just said, "Thank you so much." Yes. You know, it's like, uh, so that's some great advice. And great, a great thing. I saw that just uh, last week with somebody, and I was like, "Whoa, that's what you needed to hear." 
(laughs) You know, that's, that's what was going through my head is that that's what you needed to hear, not advice on how to fix your problem where everybody was like throwing out ideas. Here's what you should do. Here's what you should do. Instead, one person said, that must be really rough, and I know that you're going through some hard times with that. I'm so sorry. And that's that, that brought down this wall yeah, of where disarmed. every disarmed. idea that was being thrown out was like putting up a wall, wall, wall. You know, I don't, I don't want to. Thanks for the because idea. We've tried all of that. I mean, yeah. and, and we understand, as, as people who are going through it, we understand that, that people who are wanting to support us and love us through us, all they want to do is help. But sometimes we're not looking for the problem to be fixed. We're looking for us to be understood. Mm-hmm. And that can, be, that can be really hard because this is a very vulnerable position to be in as a loved one as well. So it's just, uh, th- these, are, these are tricky waters to navigate. Right. You dug into this. <laughs> Obviously, you found a bunch of studies. Can you just go into what you felt helped you how did you get into coping with your own personal ptsd symptoms Mm. and can you kind of tell us where you're at on your sideways journey now of course (laughs) of course what i did is i do what i do best and i armed myself with research Mm -hmm. so i i knew very early on that I was going to be able to help myself. I just didn't know how. And uh, looking at what was happening to me, I was so crippled by it, but I was looking to be saved and to be rescued. And one of my good friends actually said to me, you are the miracle. The Mm. answers are inside of you. And it took me a while to really resonate with that, but she's, she's right. So I was able to start looking at things like cognitive behavioral therapy and how this could be helpful to me to to go back into the experience with a with a therapist that i trusted um, and to be able to go through some of those experiences change the narrative change the uh, change the brain chemistry as i'm thinking about it Mm -hmm. so that was very very helpful and i also learned that it's important that I find just one person that I could rely on. And for me, that was my auntie die. She was a person that I could be my absolute real worst self in front of. And she, she was the person that I would call scream crying or gasping for air. And sometimes I would just need her to tell me that I was doing well and that she believed in me. And it was really important that that person in my life that I can tell everything to that she wasn't becoming negatively impacted by what I was what I was saying that I could say anything wow so and everybody needs this one person that they can bear their soul to and just know that it's going to be cared for in in their hands and that was my anti-die for me this is going to seem like a strange question maybe Mm. do you tell that person that's who they are (laughs) like I'm going to dump on you be ready (laughs) okay because I was just wondering you don't want them to think that, that you do that to everybody <laughs> no she and she knows that and yeah and she you know she is the most wonderful person she makes me feel like she is being privileged mm-hmm. to be going through it with me if i mean if you could even believe that it's, yeah. this is just how wonderful this woman is to me she's just wonderful and it's not to say that other people in my life aren't wonderful it's just I, I needed to feel like I could trust someone with those deepest darkest parts of me and that they weren't going to be 
negatively affected and she was able to 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 show me that strength so that yeah. was very important you got to be careful who you pick for that role yeah. like yeah, you, you could do. have said you know i want this to be my husband he's the closest guy to me and yeah. and, and i want to but it sounds like he needed to play another role in your life not this role that your aunt was playing with you well and and it really shouldn't be someone directly inside your own household that is experiencing variations of that trauma with you that's good advice it's it's important to pick someone outside of that circle that can be there in the ins and outs but still belong to a different home and they're not living and breathing it with you every moment of the day okay what other uh, methods did you use anything else Yes, so I started practicing on myself a form of progressive muscle contraction. Mm. So this is something I would actually do with my clients, and it involves purposefully tensing up all of your muscles and holding them for a count of five, and then releasing everything fully, completely for a count of ten. And what this does is it automatically puts you in charge of tensing your muscles, teaching your brain that you have control over tensing and relaxing. You know I'm... I'm doing this while you're talking about it, right? Are you? <laughs> of course. You can't tell someone to tense up for five seconds. Okay. <laughs> Your brain automatically does it. It <laughs> does. That's what it's trained to do. Yeah, and okay. This exercise can be used several times a day as needed, and I, I found that very helpful for me. And you're just teaching your body, like, I'm in control of tensing up. I do it when yes. I want to. Mm. Yes, yes. It's like you're putting yourself back in control. I also, I know how to stop it, right? Like, well, yeah. When yeah, I'm tensing exactly. up, this is how I stop it. I this st- is how I, I stop it. St- I stop being tense. That's that's awesome. Controlled. So it is controlled. And, and, of course, I mean, when we think about what PTSD is at its core, it's all a form of anxiety. So I wanted to understand the complexity and the role of anxiety in PTSD. Because if I could understand that then maybe I could stop resisting what's happening to me. Mm-hmm. Because after all, that feeling that I'm resisting, it's a feeling that I can't tolerate, and I can't tolerate the unknown. And that's where, essentially, where anxiety lives. So I needed to learn how to gently release that chokehold that anxiety had on me. Mm-hmm. Like, if I could get a sense of control back, then that would be where the success would come in. Because anxiety likes to live in the future. And anxiety lives in the future with all the what ifs, like what if this happens again? What if I relapse? What if, what if, what if? But it also likes to live in the past. It likes to live in reliving the flashes, leaving Mm -hmm. us with these awful feelings like we're gonna have to face it again. But anxiety doesn't live in the present. So if you can find a way to thrive there, then it can't exist there at all. So I needed to learn a way to ease gently into that present moment and gently into acceptance in what's happening with me. And what did you do? How did you lean gently into acceptance? Well, I found an excellent trauma therapist who okay. helped me to create that new narrative for myself without berating myself. And she started helping me accept things that were happening in my life right now as they were happening. And like we were talking about earlier, just to become more mindful of the of the language that we're using, so so that it's not it's not about oh my gosh I'm afraid of what's happening. It's even if this happens, I can find a way to be okay. Mm-hmm. So I told myself to recognize anxiety 
for what it was and what role it was to play. And that is that anxiety is a bully. It's a liar. It's always catastrophizing. It's always telling you something's going to come back. Don't rest. Don't relax. Uh -huh. But that's not true. Because did you know, here's another <laughs> stat I'm going to throw out at I you. I love it. Did you know that 90% of what we actually worry about day to day doesn't actually come true? Oh, I believe that. Yeah. So even though we're sitting there and even though all of these horrible things have happened to me, most of what I worry about all day long doesn't actually happen. But anxiety uh. gets your attention and then it engages with you so that you're not focusing on anything else but it. Right. But what I'm learning is that anxiety hates when you live your life and it <laughs> hates when you ignore it. So that's what I do now. I see what I can tolerate. I see what I can slowly expose myself to gently and cautiously. And then I decide that I'm going to try to live my life anyway, rather than waiting for the disaster to happen. I'm just exposing myself to the things that I'm afraid of because really that's the only way out of anxiety is through it so the more i resist it the more it persists wow you're hitting some heavy points there at the end of this um i really appreciate you opening up and sharing how you've i don't want to say got through this how you've gone sideways with this and mm -hmm. how you've gotten to where you are now in your life yeah. and it's an amazing story. I know that it's continuing and that we don't go, oh, Didi's all healed and everything's better now. <laughs> that there's mm -hmm. no. still health problems, right? You're still dealing with right. health issues. Everything isn't perfect, but I think we can all hear in your voice how happy and hopeful you are. Yes. Yeah. Yes. It's definitely like, and, and you hit on it perfectly. It's, it's not, it's not a forward forwards journey for me. It's a, it's a sideways journey. I I'm still experiencing illness, but I've decided to stop putting my pressure on myself to turn that proverbial corner because maybe there is no corner for me to turn. Maybe it's okay for me to stay down instead of getting back up right away. Maybe it's okay for me not to show up to the battle because if I don't show up to the battle, maybe there's no war. Wow. Didi, thank you so much for sharing your story with us. I, I just I thoroughly enjoyed talking to you, and I hope that others have gotten some inspiration from this. Uh, do you have any parting words that you'd like to share, especially to people that might be struggling with this, that we could send out to them and give them some direction? Yes, I, I do. I, I would urge people, number one, Mm -hmm. Please try to find uh, a very well-informed trauma therapist that can help navigate this with you. And number two, I urge anyone who is listening this, listening to this to reconstruct your idea of what wellness looks like mm -hmm. because it's not binary. It's not something that we can strive for and maintain every single day. So we end up fighting for something and we're missing the beauty of now. And what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to change the measure of what health looks like to me. The way I start my day is not always the way that it ends. I can have this perfect start to the day and then have it end in a complete disaster. But right now for me, it doesn't erase the beauty of the day. And on the same hand, the beauty of the day doesn't erase the challenge. So they both exist in my sideways world. 
So I'm That's not moving beautiful. forward. I'm not moving backwards. <laughs> I'm moving sideways. I love it. That's beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing. And as always, I'm going to ask you and close with the question. Well, I usually ask, do you have gut hope? <laughs> but you're, I'm just going to ask you, do you have hope? <laughs> you have a lot going on. I absolutely have hope. I'm, I, I'm learning to have faith and I'm learning to trust in my body again. So absolutely, I have gut hope. Thank you, Dee Dee. And I can't wait to follow up with you someday and hear about how things have progressed and how you've moved forward on your sideways journey. Mm-hmm.